Today on Blue 58, a significant injury in New York affects the Packers. It seemed like we'd make it a bit farther than week one before we had to go deep on Aaron Rodgers and the Jets, but here we are. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink, happy to be with you here for another episode. Like I said in the intro, I thought we would get a little bit farther than week one before we really had to talk about Aaron Rodgers and the Jets. Not so much that I really have anything against Aaron Rodgers or want to you know, avoid talking about him, but it just it was nice to focus on something other than Aaron Rodgers and his issues with the Packers for a little while. And yet, here we are. The Jets made it all of four offensive plays into their Aaron Rodgers experiment before it came to a crashing end. He tore his Achilles tendon or ruptured his Achilles tendon or whatever terminology you want to use uh, during the Jets' week one victory over the the Buffalo Bills. Good on the Jets on, I guess, withstanding that injury and coming out with the win. But a real bummer, I think, just about all around. Uh, First for Rodgers, whatever your feelings are on him, this is is a bummer. I think as, as football fans... Uh, maybe you have real ill intent toward Rodgers. Maybe if that's the case, take a, take a breather, consider your, your personal priorities and, you know, how this football game affects you. Uh, but I think just as, as fans of football, it's better for there to be more good quarterbacks in the league than fewer good quarterbacks in the league. For, so from that aspect alone, it's a bummer to not have him out there in 2024. Then you look at the possibility that this could be a career ender, depending how he recovers from his Achilles tear. It's not going to be an easy road back. It's obviously a major tendon. Uh, it's about as big as it gets. Uh, you know, not an athletic trainer, not a, a human biology expert, but the Achilles, pretty important. Um so that is going to be a big aspect of, of his decision to come back for 2024. Uh, obviously, that's going to be a complicated process for him and for the Jets to navigate here. It seems like they'd probably like to have him back, considering what they did contract-wise to get him to this point. But it's also just a bummer from a storyline perspective. I think there was an aspect of curiosity for a lot of people, just me included, of seeing how Rogers' game would travel to New York. How much of the offense would be Aaron Rodgers' staples that we've seen from his time in Green Bay? How much would he be able to adapt to what Nathaniel Hackett wanted to try with New York? How would he just make things work with some new pieces on offense? Not a ton, obviously, because they've got Alan Lazard and Randall Cobb around, but, you know, Garrett Wilson, Brees Hall... How would he have fit in with those pieces? We'll never know now. And if he does come back for 2024, everything's just going to be a year removed. You never know what's going to happen as far as those other guys. You know, it's possible other guys get hurt. Or in the case of a guy like Randall Cobb, he may not end up playing in the NFL next year. So all those moving pieces together really, you know, take a hit with Rodgers, well, taking a hit of his own here and uh, being done for the season. It also kind of shows a couple of problems here. First, the idea that one player needs to be this important to your team, that you go kind of all in to say, not only do we build around this guy, but we need to go get him, give up a bunch of resources to get him. That in itself is a problem. But then I think you could argue, and I'm, you know, it's hard to say because it's not really clear what they could have done differently. I guess they could have been a little bit more aggressive in the draft from this aspect, but the Jets didn't really add anybody of consequence on their offensive line. 
And everybody all offseason long was like, yeah, that line is going to be a problem. And whether Rodgers should have got the ball out quicker or not, Monday night, you know, you can talk about it as long as you want. That's always been an issue for him. But you can't say that the Jets really did all that they could on the offensive line because they really didn't do much of anything at all to try to make their very shabby offensive line any better to protect this aging quarterback who is is declining in his mobility. So what do you expect from a certain from a certain aspect of this? You know, do you expect Rodgers to come out of this entirely clean when you don't shore up an area that you know is a trouble spot? You go out and get this guy who's supposed to fix your entire roster just by being there and then you don't really protect him. And now here you are four plays in and your big investment is gone. Of course, we we talk about this because it it does affect the Packers. The the Packers had a conditional draft pick tied up in this. Uh, they needed Aaron Rodgers to play 65% of the snaps this season for the Jets to have the conditional second round pick escalate to a first round pick in 2024. That's not going to happen now. You are not going to get to 65% in any way, shape, or form. So the net of the Rodgers trade at this point looks like it's going to be two second-round picks plus the 2023 first-round pick swap. There is the idea that if the Jets wanted to do something involving trading their first-round pick for next year, say if they wanted to, I don't know, free it up so that they could uh, go after some sort of quarterback prospect. I don't even know who that would be. I don't know which quarterback is available for the price of a first-round pick that you would even feel like you could trade for at this point that would make any kind of a difference. In theory, that condition still is in effect. So the Jets' first-round pick is still nominally tied to the Packers, even though Aaron Rodgers isn't going to get to 65% of the the Jets' snaps this year. Uh, If the Jets wanted to move that, they could probably sweeten the deal for the Packers somehow. I'm not entirely sure how that would work. This is kind of unprecedented territory. But if nothing else changes, the net of the Rodgers trade looks like the two second round picks, one in 2023, one in 2024, plus the 2023 pick swap. So the return on that so far is Lucas Van Ness, Luke Musgrave, and a 2024 second round pick. That doesn't sound too shabby to me. Packers get to try with Jordan Love. They get a couple of solid players and a, another pick coming in 2024. What that pick ends up being is going to depend in large part, well, exclusively, I guess, how the Jets do this year. But at least they've got the extra second rounder. So far, it looks like the second rounders the Packers spent in 2023 are panning out pretty nicely. Musgrave and Jaden Reed are those two second round picks. So if they can do that again in 2024, you'll be in pretty good shape. But a bummer overall, kind of a bummer for everybody involved. And if this is the end for Aaron Rodgers, what an unfortunate way to go out. Just a reminder that so few guys, I mean, pretty much everybody who plays sports doesn't get to decide when they're done for themselves. You just run out of games and and that's it for you. You don't get to just say, yeah, I think I'm done with competition now. It just it's kind of taken from you. And that's the cruel reality of how sports works. You only get so much time. And for most of us, you don't really know how much time you actually have. On a happier note, I thought we would take a little bit of time and look back on what happened for the Packers in week one. See if there were any other threads that we could explore that we really didn't get a chance to after the game. 
or some things that we needed to dive into uh, in a little bit more depth now that we've got some information on snap counts, on some, some more advanced stats and things like that. So I thought we would we would take a second and take a look at those those things here before we put week one to rest uh, for good. And I think we'll probably end up doing something like this uh, over the course of the season just because there there's a lot to get to and we want to make sure that we we really get a chance to to really take a look at the the information that we had. Starting with Lucas Van Ness, uh, one of the, the the pieces that the Packers, I guess, got in the trade involving Aaron Rodgers. A question that came up in our Discord server this week was whether or not he had spent any time rushing from the inside. And I can tell you that the answer is no. Uh, all of the snaps that Lucas Van Ness played were on the edge, either as a stand-up outside linebacker or as a defensive end rushing with his hand on the ground. And I'm totally fine with that for week one. That is nominally part of his skill set that he should be able to kick inside at some point. He did that a lot early in his career at Iowa, but uh, not Adding that package for him in week one, his first NFL game when he's still trying to figure things out as an edge rusher, totally fine with that. Give him a little bit of time. And the Packers had no problem getting pass rush from their interior rushers anyway. So if things are going to work and you're going to be able to get pressure on on the passer without moving anybody around, why do it? Just go with the guys that are there and you can always add more in later. Speaking of the pass rush stuff, it was wild. Uh, the amount of pressure that the the Packers were getting on a regular basis, uh, down in and down out. Uh, just running down some of the numbers, uh, Rashawn Gary got pressure on exactly 50% of his pass rushes. He rushed the passer 10 times, was credited by Pro Football Focus with five pressures. Pretty amazing stuff. Devontae Wyatt got a pressure on just over 27% of his pass rushes. Lucas Van Ness just under 21%. Kenny Clark sitting pretty comfortably at 16%. Just impressive numbers across the board. We're also keeping track this year at thepowersweep.com on uh, on pressures on true pass sets. We talked about that a, a couple weeks back in an episode. The numbers there, even more impressive. Uh, Rashawn Gary rushed on nine true pass sets and got pressure on five of them. So again, over 50% there. Devontae Wyatt up near 35%. Kenny Clark with a career-high 25%. Uh, for the season so far, I get. I know it's only one game, but the pass rush numbers were insane against the Bears. And it does come with a little bit of an asterisk because I'm not sure the, the Packers are going to play an offensive line that is as bad as the Bears for the foreseeable future. In addition to just not being very good, the Bears were also a bit banged up and they got worse during the game. But still, uh, you can only play the guys that are in front of you and the Bear, the, the Packers beat up those guys on Sunday. Flipping over to offense for a second, I expressed some disappointment a few weeks back about the state of the tight end room and how the tight ends may not play a huge factor in the uh, in the Packers offense this year. A small correction on that because the Packers got wild with their tight ends uh, at a couple occasions during the game, in particular on their opening drive and not long after that. Uh, at times, I think, in in fact, it was a, a three-play sequence on their first drive. The Packers had three tight ends on the field, if you count Josiah DeGuara still as a tight end. But they were moving guys around. Uh, in, in a couple of those plays, they started out with two tight ends in the backfield. DeGuara lined up as a, a fullback of sorts. Uh, ben Sims in the backfield, then motioning out to a wing. 
so the Packers had a traditional two tight end look. It was just, it was really cool to see. And it showed that the Packers can still be creative, even if they don't have a whole ton of just tight ends on the roster. Back on defense, uh, we did not get a chance to mention Carrington Valentine's contributions in our post-game recap just because we didn't have any stats on him. Well, the reason that we didn't have any stats on him is that because nobody tried to throw in his direction. 17 coverage snaps for Carrington Valentine on Sunday, but did not allow a completion and was not, in fact, targeted with a pass, which I think is a pretty good debut for a day three rookie uh, playing his first NFL game. Also wanted to add uh, our undrafted rookie free agent crop uh, to our rookie recap uh, segment of the podcast. Uh, so going forward after every game, I'll talk a little bit about the uh, the Packers' notable undrafted rookies, uh, like we do with all the other draft picks as well. Uh, so that for this, this year includes Emmanuel Wilson, and Brenton Cox and Malik Heath. Now, Wilson and Cox were not active on Sunday, but Malik Heath was and did play quite a bit. Played 29 snaps on offense. He, according to Pro Football Focus, had the most run-blocking snaps of any receiver with 20, uh, which was, in fact, only two more than Dontavion Wicks. He was also graded fairly highly as a run-blocker, rated a 59.7 as a run-blocker, according to Pro Football Focus, for whatever you take that to be worth, which is not too shabby. It's not like outstanding, but it's pretty good for, again, a rookie playing his first game in the NFL. On a related note there, that is only two more run-blocking snaps than Dontavion Wicks, which I think the surprise of the weekend, in my opinion, was how much Wicks played. Uh, He did not end up getting any catches, but was targeted with a pass down near the goal line on the Packers' first drive. Wicks looks like he has a role to play on this Packers offense here fairly early in the season. Branching out from this year's rookie class, Papa Rue asks in our Discord server about last year's rookies. Uh, have they answered any lingering questions about them from the offseason? Let's just run through the rookie class from last season real quick. Now, of course, we know we no longer have Tariq Carpenter in that class. But Quay Walker, uh, if you were worried about his playmaking ability at all coming out of last season, I think he answered that in pretty definitive fashion. Still a little bit of a shaky tackler. Uh, But a lot of guys were pretty shaky in week one, and I think you can attribute that to just not having played a whole lot of football to this point in the season. That's definitely something we can be keeping an eye on over the course of the year, though. Devontae Wyatt uh, barely played last year, quite famously, but was on the field quite a bit this, uh, this week and was very successful when he was out on the field. Christian Watson didn't play. Sean Ryan did not have a big role in week one, so still some lingering questions there. Romeo Dobbs, if you want to talk about answering questions, I think out of anybody in the rookie draft class, he might have answered the most. I think the biggest concern about Dobbs last year was how weak at times he looked at the catch point. It just looked like he did not have very strong hands, was not able to finish some catches that he got his hands on. And I think that that makes a lot of sense. Just looking at Romeo Dobbs, he is not really a big-bodied receiver. I know his listed weight puts him about 200 pounds, he looks like a fairly slightly built receiver. But this week, at least, he looked a lot stronger with the ball in his hands, uh, in particular on two catches. That first catch uh, on the third down and 13, where he runs kind of a a long slant and picks up the first down, just a, a nice strong catch and finishes the play getting the first down. And then on his second of his two touchdowns, uh, plucking the ball out of the air on the fade, 
great, great play, just looks strong at the catch point, and I think has answered some of those questions, at least for now, that were lingering in my mind, at least from last year. Uh, rounding out the rest of the rookie class, Zach Tom. Boy, I don't have any questions at all about Zach Tom other than what can't he do. It's just wild that four years after uh, Brian Gutekunst drafted Elton Jenkins, he just went and said, hey, I would like to have another one of those, please, and went out and found Zach Tom, another do-it-all offensive lineman who looks like a veteran, veteran player here in his second season. J.J. Nigbari, no real questions after last season, uh, got the start in week one as Rashawn Gary continues to work his way back. Among the, I guess, less impressive pass rushers just in terms of stats, but if everybody else is getting pressures at the rate that they were, there are only so many to go around. So uh, I'm willing to give him a bit of a break. Other than that, Jonathan Ford, Rashid Walker, I don't really have anything to add for them from where they were last year to this year, just based on week one. I think Rashid Walker has made enormous strides from where he was last year, but we didn't really see a ton from him in week one, though he did play. And Samori Ture is basically that same guy too, had a nice explosive play. Uh, in week one, but not anything different from where they were, where he was in, 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 well, I guess last season, I was going to say in week one of last year, it's considerably different from week one of last year, but overall as a player, basically still that same guy. I feel pretty good about where the Packers young players are, I guess, overall. Uh, I talked about that after the game, the Packers rookie class looked really solid in week one. And again, it, it is against the Bears. I, I don't want to come across too negative here. But the Packers beat up on a pretty bad team in Week One. They the Bears looked like a team that was in play for the the first overall pick last spring for good reason, and it looks like they haven't taken many strides beyond that. In part because they're just so limited at quarterback. But uh, the Packers can't control that part of it. They can just beat up on the guys that are in front of them, and they definitely did that. It's one of the things that you want to to do in the NFL is hammer the teams that you're supposed to hammer. And based on what the Packers did on Sunday, the Bears were definitely a team that they were supposed to hammer, and they took care of business and did exactly that in week one. 38-20 to is about as good as it gets coming right out of the gate, especially when I think you could argue in, in some respects the Packers didn't necessarily play all that well. They didn't necessarily have the cleanest performance on offense, but if there's room for improvement in a 38-20 to win, that's pretty good. I'd like to close today by touching on A.J. Dillon's performance again. We mentioned kind of this kind of in passing um, at the at the end of the game or after, well, in our post-game discussion uh, after the Packers win on Sunday. And I want to add a little bit more nuance to my A.J. Dillon take from Sunday. We talked about how he was not that impressive on Sunday. 13 carries, 19 yards is hard to get excited about. And I wanted to to try to add a little bit of context to that performance and see what we can really worry about here. Now, Sunday was not good. Does the picture get better if we expand things out a little bit? I wanted to look at A.J. Dillon's last 100 carries or so and really see where he's been as a player over that, that sample size because I think that's a lot more fair to look at than, well, and then really just one game. 100 carries gets us a pretty neat data set. It's it's a nine-game stretch dating back to week 10 of last year. And in, in those 100 carries, A.J. Dillon has produced exactly 400 yards 
on 101 carries. So over nine games, he's had 101 carries. So that's an average of 3.96 yards per carry. But he's also scored four touchdowns. And in that same span, he's caught 14 passes for 124 yards. Adding a little bit of nuance to those numbers, in those 101 carries, Dylan has eight runs of 10 or more yards, but 22 runs for no yards or a loss. Seven runs for a loss specifically. So 15 runs for no yards, seven runs for a loss. Interestingly, I thought pretty good as a receiver in that span. 14 catches for 124 yards isn't like world-beating numbers by any any stretch of the imagination, but still pretty solid there. Also recorded two explosive plays through the air. Over that same span, over that same nine-game span, Aaron Jones has 115 carries, so about the same overall um, number of touches, at least on the ground. He has far more catches than, than Dylan does. But just on the ground, uh, Jones has put up 562 yards on those 115 carries in that same nine-game span, uh, an average of 4.89 yards per carry, so almost a full yard per carry better than, uh, than A.J. Dillon. In that same number of carries, or in roughly the same number of carries, Jones has 14 runs of 10 yards or more, but also 36 runs for no yards or a loss, including 15 runs for negative yardage. So Jones does average more per carry and does have a lot more, you know, big carries than Dylan does, but he has, he's also a lot more likely to produce a run for a loss than Dylan is. So what does all this mean? Trying to add a little bit of context to, to AJ Dylan's performance. I think Dylan, it's fair to call him a pretty middling running back, but just compared to Jones, he's a lot less boom but also a lot less bust than Aaron Jones. And I think what the big issue with Dylan is that it just doesn't look good a lot of the time. When you think of a bad A.J. Dillon run, you think of him getting tripped up maybe in the open field, maybe in the backfield, or maybe worst of all, on a play where it doesn't seem like he's being used in a way that suits his skills very well, either on a pitch or trying to they're trying to work him around the outside, something like that. And that part of it, the usage stuff, is not his fault. I don't understand why the Packers use A.J. Dillon sometimes the way that they do. I think we've pretty definitively put to rest the idea that running A.J. Dillon out of shotgun is a bad idea because he has been productive running out of shotgun he does a pretty good job even inside the goal line running out of shotgun. But it's the toss plays. It's the, the plays where Dylan is starting from a dead stop and trying to get wide that I think really don't suit him very well as a player. And when things don't go well, it seems like it tends to be on those sorts of plays. I don't have hard numbers on that. That's mostly anecdotal. But I think when we, we talk about our our perception of A.J. Dillon, and a lot of this comes down to perception, that's why there's a negative perception around A.J. Dillon a lot of the time because, well, it just, he's not always used in a way that feels like is super suited to his skill set. And I think that's something the Packers need to take a look at internally. Unfortunately for Dillon, 
he runs into a little bit of a problem with that too. Because I think if you're starting to look for competition at running back, the things that A.J. Dillon should do pretty well are also the things that guys like Emmanuel Wilson and Patrick Taylor happen to do pretty well too. If you look at the makeup of the Packers running back room, you've got three guys that are one style and one guy who's a different style. You've got Aaron Jones, who's basically the little scat back type, five foot eight, five foot nine, 195, 200 pounds, if you're generous. Then you've got more the big bodied, straight ahead power backs in the vein of an A.J. Dillon, an Emmanuel Wilson, a Patrick Taylor. All three of those guys are big, straight ahead running backs who are going to shake off contact and hopefully keep going. That's what A.J. Dillon has always been at his best. That's what Emmanuel Wilson showed us in the preseason. That's what Patrick Taylor is at his best, too. Don't take this as an insult, but they are all kind of blunt instruments. They are power backs. And if A.J. Dillon is faltering, and if he can't do that part well, it's going to look really bad if Emmanuel Wilson or Patrick Taylor comes in and does better than Dylan does at the things that Dylan is supposed to do well. Keep in mind, though, that a lot of the perception around A.J. Dillon just has to do with kind of putting together a highlight reel of of bad stuff in your head because the numbers show that on a per-carry basis, he's less likely to come up with a bad play than Aaron Jones is. He's also a lot less likely to come up with a really spectacular play But avoiding the bad plays is an important aspect of his game, too. You wish you would get a lot more of the uh, the top-end stuff from Dylan, especially considering that they did burn a second-round pick on him in 2020. But I don't think adding, I guess, a little bit of nuance to the discussion from Sunday, I don't think it's purely bust all the time for A.J. Dylan. Sure, it's not that exciting, but he's not necessarily sinking the Packers' offense either, at least. Well, he's at least he's not coming up with negative runs to the same extent that Aaron Jones does. That's all I've got for you on this episode of Blue 58. I appreciate you tuning in. I would appreciate it even more if you would take a second and share this episode with someone you think would enjoy it. It's going to help more people find the show and get more people involved in this conversation you and I are having about the Green Bay Packers, which in turn is going to help all of us, me included, become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.